My name is Fiona Zeiger and you're listening to the Migration Podcast. In April 2019, a year before we launched the Migration Podcast, I sat down for an interview with Nina Glick-Schiller in New York. New York is the city where Nina had based her PhD project on Haitian immigrants, a project that laid the foundation for the book Nations Unbound. The book, co-authored by Linda Bash, Nina Glick-Schiller and Christina Santendlong, would deeply impact how we think about migrant social, political and economic ties across national borders. In our conversation, Nina told me about how the idea for Nations Unbound germinated. We spoke about her intellectual project throughout the years and about how she carved out a career in academia from the margins. As I recorded this interview before the Migration Podcast had taken shape, I was free from the time constraints we usually impose on our conversations. This resulted in an insightful interview that is a tad longer than our other episodes. I hope you will enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Nina. I grew up at a time when there was, it wasn't assumed that women necessarily went to college, and my mother did did go, but she didn't complete it, and it wasn't assumed that I would go to college. And if you went to college, the assumption was that you would become a, a teacher or you would become a teacher. <laughs> Um, and if you didn't go to college, you would become a secretary. And there weren't a lot of other possibilities. So I went to college and I thought I'd become a history teacher. And then I took my first anthropology course and I fell in love with anthropology. I have always been interested in the way people lived around the world. And, uh, and my first anthropology teacher was a woman and that was very rare. She, there were only a few women faculty members when I went went to university and she was articulate and she was political and she uh, was beautiful and I thought I want to be just like her so but I knew I couldn't go to graduate school I have scholarships all through university um, I was the oldest of five children my parents couldn't send me to college unless I had scholarships, and they definitely weren't going to send me to graduate school because they had to educate everyone else. But I got fellowships, and so I was able to go to Columbia. I developed my areas of specialization for my PhD exams in immigration and in cities and in social change. And then, although I, I had been interested in Africa and and, and was studying Africa too, but I decided both for political and personal reasons that I would stay. I would start in New York, and I knew by developing those, those exam areas that there actually was a history of urban anthropology that went back several generations of anthropologists. So it always surprises me when around 2000 and even now people say, now that anthropologists have started to study cities, or now that anthropologists have started to study immigration, when it was clear to me as I was putting these, these uh, preparing for my PhD exams that there was, there was this whole literature uh, on, uh, in which anthropologists have been engaged with, with cities, with 
questions of racialization, with questions of class, with questions of power, with questions of migration. I did my PhD studying uh, immigration from Haiti to New York City. But as soon as I started to study, from the very beginning, I posed it as the study of a new ethnic group in New York City. That's what I thought I was doing. But as soon as I started to do the research, it became clear to me that that was not the right way to formulate the question because the Haitian immigrants did not see themselves as ethnics and as a group. So both, both parts of the term were wrong. They were very divided by class uh, and by politics. So there was no sense of a community, and they never used the word. And in addition, they didn't, because they had no sense of community, there was no sense of group, and they really objected to the word ethnic because they felt that that categorized them as less than full residents of the country and less than full citizens, and it was a pejorative term that was used to, to uh, racialize them. So those were two things I realized. And I realized there were also a number of Haitian scholars who had fled. People were coming from Haiti um, because there was political repression there and the economy was terrible because of the politics. So I also learned that you can't make a division between economic refugees, economic migrants and political refugees, that these things are intimately related. And those categories didn't work either. What I did notice was that the major institutions in New York City, the Democratic Party and the Catholic Church, the anti-poverty programs that were just taking off at that time, and the foundations all were very interested in the Haitian migration. And that was interesting because it was a very small migration compared to the number of Puerto Ricans in New York City um, or Chinese people coming into the city or Dominicans and Dominicans coming into the city. So why the interest in Haitians and why the insistence by the part of the institutions that the Haitians were a new ethnic group? So I um, organized a different way of looking at migration, which was what is the relationship between incoming populations and major institutions. I define them as major American institutions. I conflated New York City and the whole United States. And it was only later that I realized that that, that was there were critical theoretical weaknesses in that approach. So I began to answer the question, why are they so interested by interviewing not just the Haitian migrants, but also representatives of these institutions. And um, I hypothesized that because the Haitians were black immigrants or, or, or were seen by the dominant institutions as black immigrants, there was a political agenda to divide them from the uh, African-Americans who uh, were talking about black power and revolution. And so have a a politics of divide and conquer by convincing Haitian leaders to to uh, form a new ethnic group and giving them money and community centers and and access to political leaders in New York and making them members of the Democratic Party even though they couldn't vote yet 
all as part of the strategy of differentiation. So that's that was my introduction to urban anthropology. It was an anthropology of institutions, not of everyday life, and um, not of ethnic identity per se. There was at the time, and there still is, there's a long history, I realized, in the United States of ethnic politics. So even while the official ideology about immigration was assimilation, everybody should give up their roots, actually in New York City and in certain major cities of the United States, people organized around ethnicity to gain political power. And so the the people who saw career opportunities and social mobility through working with the institutions started to do that. And they formed a, a, whole, a number of Haitian community centers. Originally, they had been working, there was a community anti-poverty program that had Dominicans and Haitians and Puerto Ricans all in the neighborhood. It had a neighborhood base. And the Haitians were convinced to break off and form their own Haitian Neighborhood Service Center. So that's why I, I, I developed that hypothesis. It was directly from the processes I observed. Ten years later or so, I uh, did a restudy, and we interviewed the leaders of 100 Haitian organizations, and we interviewed uh, the leaders of a number of institutions in New York City, or funding organizations in New York City, and we were able to more fully document that process. But at that time, I began to see that people were, these Haitian organizations actually had two, two very different agendas. When they were speaking to the funders, they were speaking about building the Haitian community in the United States, getting people to vote, getting people to participate in the political process, and becoming citizens, and that was that was happening. Although um, generally this was a small minority of the immigrant population, but they spoke publicly as representatives of the whole. But at the same time, these people were organizing in relationship to Haiti because the political situation under Duvalier, and then by this time it was the son of uh, the son of the original uh, Haitian leader. Political opposition continued. People were involved both in uh, supporting growing movements of opposition, which were really based in the U.S. and Canada, and, and to some degree in France, but mostly the U.S. and Canada. And they were, they were sending money home to their families and helping more people to migrate. They were simultaneously relating to the political process and the social structure social economic structure of Haiti and of the United States. As I was observing that, I started to speak to Linda Bash and Christina Zanton, and Linda Bash was working with, um, with immigrants from Grenada and uh, St. Vincent, and Christina was working with immigrants from the Philippines, and we began to talk to each other, and we began to see the same thing, and we began to see that there was something fundamentally wrong with migration theory because the migration theory kept talking about assimilation and over generations people losing their identity even though the politics as I just said of major cities like New York had persistently been 
maintain having people maintain not only their ethnic identity but their home ties so that um, part of the the uh, way in which votes were attracted historically in the United States throughout the from the beginning of the 20th century or a little before that up until the 1960s was for politicians to say, I will help your home country. Truman, it is said, got elected. He was the um, post-World War II president in the United States, got elected because of his policies toward Greece. So their policies toward Italy or Greece got or, or opposition to uh, uh, the Soviet Union got them votes among Czech or Polish or Italian or Irish or their support for the IRA. That all got people votes. So there was actually a transnational politics that was not at all part of major migration theory. Mm-hmm. And there was actually these ongoing home ties on for families, for businesses, for culture that were not part of migration theory. So that's why we decided to write Nations on that, which took us a long time because we were each mothers. So we had home responsibilities and small children. Our children joked that they grew up while we wrote the book. (laughs) They were small. We took them out for dinner to celebrate our contract. And by the time we finished the book, they were teenagers. But we uh, finished the book and it got published in 1994. And it challenged bounded thinking, bounded units of analysis, It built on world system theory. It built on understanding of global capitalism that was being developed at the time. It was a book that reflected our political and economic analysis as well as our critique of migration theory. And to write it, we had to carve out times out of busy busy lives. So we would get up like at five in the morning. Linda had a hard time getting up. Christina would get up early and throw pebbles at my window and wake me up and then I and then I'd let her in and she'd come in and write. So we wrote to we wrote together at least two of us at the computer at any one time. We also Linda liked to stay up late, so we stayed up in her office. She was at that time a dean at Manhattan College and which was a small college near our homes and we stay up very late. The security guards were really curious about what was going on. They kept knocking on the door and saying, Dr. Bash, Dr. Bash, are you okay? And they'd come in and I don't know what they thought they'd find, but there we were, be huddled by her computer writing. So, uh, and Linda's husband got lonely, so he, in the middle of the night he'd deliver ice cream or pizza or something. So it must have been about 1980. Six, eighty-five or 86 that we started to mm-hmm. talk about it. And we looked for a word to call this phenomenon. We, everyone was writing about transnational corporations. So we said, let's call it transnationalism to parallel the corporations. And since that time, people have said, well, it's, it's translocal, it's transsocial. Why is it transnational? But they hadn't raised that criticism about transnational corporations. And it was about, it. we, we were talking about um, people being engaged in the politics 
of more than one nation state. So in that sense, it was a politics that was a nation-building politics that took, a, took place across national borders. Can you remember when you all came together and decided you wanted to write that book? Or how did this idea germinate? It happened on a couch in Linda's, in Linda's living room. Linda has a very nice living room that overlooks the Hudson River. We were sitting there in her living room, and we, when the idea started to gel. But we had started to come together. We hadn't known each other very well, uh, but we've, we were marginalized And I think that's important to note because it's about it's about gender and it's about the trend of exoticism that has you know continues to pervade and has pervaded anthropology. I mean, because we were women, it was very hard to get a, a job in anthropology at that time. There were very few women faculty members and even fewer tenured senior professors. But in addition to that, the topics we were interested in were not seen as part of anthropology. So anthropology and the areas of the world. So we had like three strikes against this. Now it's, it may be hard for people to realize, but there seems to be all the jobs seem to be about transnational migration. It was the same thing when we tried to get grants. Nobody would fund the research either. So our research was really self-funded and, and, and the time carved out from, from our lives. Having done all that, um, I couldn't find a job. Uh, so I finally decided I, I'm not ever going to find a job in anthropology. I'll, be, I'll have to relearn things and become a public health researcher because there were a lot of jobs in public health. So I did a, I, I did research as really a researcher. Uh, it wasn't my research, but a friend of mine on a homeless mentally ill in New York City. Again, right in this neighborhood, as the neighborhood began to gentrify, right, in, right in the, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And um, then a study of people with AIDS in New Jersey. I think they wanted an anthropologist because they didn't think anybody else would go out and talk to people with AIDS. Um, this was in the middle of the AIDS epidemic and when people were dying all the time. Also, they had this very wrong idea that Haitians had AIDS, that Haitians transmitted AIDS. It had something to do with being Haitian, which was absolutely false, it, you know, and led to tremendous discrimination against Haitian Haitian children, Haitian immigrants. The point was you get AIDS from someone else who has AIDS, whoever that is. You know. So I did that research and thought I would then go and get a degree in, in, uh, in public health when I finally got a job teaching anthropology. But it was not in New York City where I wanted to, which I knew a lot about. It was um, the second time I had gotten a, a um, tenure-track job in anthropology. The first time I had to go to Ohio, because only in Ohio did they think New York was exotic. And, um, and then I came back to New York, and this time I had to leave New York again and go to New Hampshire. When I got to New Hampshire, I 
decided to take my students into the nearest city, which was an, about an hour away by car, and begin a project on immigration in New Hampshire because I didn't know anything about it and neither did anybody else um, at the time. The only research that had been done in the city of Manchester, New Hampshire, where I decided to do research was, um, had been decades before. And as soon as I started doing the research, I realized that we really needed to theorize cities because the experience of settling in as an immigrant in, in, in Manchester, New Hampshire, was nothing like New York City. I thought I was an expert because of New York. But there were no ethnic politics. There were no organizations funding uh, ethnic, almost um, ethnic organizing. There was, in fact, very few social services providing anything for anybody, immigrant or non-immigrant. So immigrants and ref and it was an area of refugee resettlement. So people would come, uh, be given three months to learn English and learn how to live in the United States, and then left on their own to survive. So the question really emerged: Who helped them? How did they manage? How did they figure out how to live in in Manchester and in other places in New Hampshire, which is a rather rural state? When was that? Around what time? Actually, I, I started that about 2000. So my question really became, what is the relationship between migrants and not powerful cities, but what I started to call disempowered cities? Would there ever have been an alternative career path? Like, if not academics or anything else, you would have seen yourself doing? Well, I mean, it was an anthropologist or a revolutionary, and I've tried to do both at different times or together. Um, I wanted to change the world. I thought anthropology was part of what you needed to change the world. That to You couldn't change the world unless you understood the world, and you couldn't understand the world. I had a joint major. I had joint majors in sociology, anthropology, and political science. And looking at the three disciplines, it seemed to me you had to understand how people lived, what they needed, how they saw the world, and in order to be able to work together to change the world. When I got to graduate school, it became clear that nobody was like Connie Sutton, my first anthropology teacher. When I went out to just organize in Ohio, I ran up against all the ideas, uh, reactionary ideas that are produced by the at the university. Then I realized how important the struggle for ideas at universities were, and I decided to go back in and use that credentialing to to struggle for. Uh, uh, what I felt were the lessons of anthropology in terms of a basic sense of human's desire for a decent life for, for everyone in terms of social justice and equality. And that pops up and respect that pops up everywhere I've ever been or with anyone I'm, or the people I know from all over the world. You know, I try very much to work with other people because I think knowledge is comes from collect, collective knowledge, joint knowledge, shared knowledge, and I think it reflects social positioning. 
I think the reason Linda and Christina and I could break through in migration theory is because we were positioned on the margins and that helped us think differently. I think that uh, people who experience oppression, not everybody, but from the experience of gender differentiation, racialization, class differentiation, gives people insights into the way the system works that you don't get if you're just if you're in positions of power. So you need those insights if you're going to understand the world and change. On that note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for your time and for the interview and fitting all this into yeah, your day. Nina Glick-Schiller is Emeritus Professor of Anthropology and was the Director of the Cosmopolitan Cultures Institute at the University of Manchester. This interview was recorded in April 2019.